Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Connecting to the big show. In three, two, one. We are in no position to be able to defend ourselves in any way whatsoever. Ireland is defenceless. Every time that it happens, we have to talk about how the good men feel. Help us. Without G backing us, putting it on the air and telling the people how important it is, then it wouldn't have gone anywhere. We're the one for Cork and ready to talk. Can we just talk? Call 0818-969696. Extra WhatsApp 083-396-9696. Email opinion at 96fm.ie. The lines are live. Let's kickstart the conversation. This is The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. On Cork's 96FM. There were some fantastic pictures and videos going around social last evening of those three enormous cranes, the the largest structures ever engineered in Ireland and they're on their way to New Jersey and we were talking to the managing director for sales from Lieber, the company that built them the other day, these three enormous cranes set off yesterday afternoon on the high tide from the dockyard heading off to New Jersey and when they get to New Jersey remember he said they have to they have to build them, finish building them and then put them into place. It's an enormous job of, of engineering. Great and some fantastic photographs. There's a, a picture on the 96FM Twitter um, of the, them taking off yesterday afternoon. Fantastic, fantastic, fantastic. Good, have you no- Good morning, by the way. Thursday, the week flying. Have you noticed anything about this government? I thought of something as I was driving in this morning listening to the Robert Troy story, which... I think it was kind of inevitable from lunchtime yesterday that he was gone. But anyway, have you noticed this government can't seem to get through the month of August without some hitting the skids in some way? The last three Augusts now, we've had grief. August 2020. Remember Golfgate? Do you remember that morning? We're sitting here wondering about that. And people were furious about golf game. Remember that? That was August of 2020. August of 2021, we were just about getting through the whole Catherine Zappone debacle from last summer. And there was other stuff going on. And now we have Robert Troy in August of 2022. August is supposed to be a, a quiet month in politics. It's supposed to be the, the month in politics where the politicians actually take a holiday uh, before 
going back to work in committees and stuff like that. For the last three hours, it's almost like there's some kind of a of a hex on Michal Martin's government that he can't seem to get through August without having to ditch somebody. Um, I'd love your thoughts on Robert Troy, though, because... And we'll talk later in the morning to Adam Higgins from the Irish Sun to see what happens now. But Troy eventually resigned yesterday. It seems that the what put the tin hat on it was when Eamon Ryan went on the one o'clock news and said that he needed to be investigated. Two separate investigations were needed into what he had done. Remember, he has 11 properties and, and he only registered. He didn't register them all and only... It was a mess, just a total and absolute mess. He says he hasn't tried to conceal anything. His biggest event, uh, uh, offence was lack of due diligence, which is interesting because he's a minister in the Department of Enterprise and Trade, etc., etc., who's responsible for other companies doing their due diligence. Like, in simple terms, his job involves regulations for companies and regulations for businesses. And here he's saying, well, I didn't quite understand the regulate. I mean, give me a break here. But we'll talk about it with Adam a little later on. He says, I I will not apologize for being a landlord. I bought my first house at the age of 20, went straight into a job after school. So I was in a position to purchase my first property then. He said, vilifying landlords isn't the answer. It won't help the problem. He said, the narrative that he and other landlords, and in the Oireachtas now between the Zoll and Shannon, there's about 80 of them. He said, the narrative being put forward is he and other landlords are villains is simply wrong. He is blaming everybody, the opposition. He's blaming the media. He's blaming everybody except himself. Your papers are full of it this morning. You can read as much or as little as you choose. The examiner says Troy quits post after 10 difficult days. Difficult for who? Difficult for him or difficult for us knowing it was coming eventually? Troy resigns as Minister of State, says the Irish Times. The the tabloids, the red, the red tops have the fall of Troy. Uh, the Irish Mirror has the fall of Troy. The Echo has the Troy on the front page. Uh, the fall of Troy also on the star and the Independent says Defiant Troy makes no apologies as he resigns. And it goes on and on and on. He makes no apologies as he resigns. There's a deal done in the back room. There's a deal done, and I will talk to Adam Higgins about that later. But I would like your thoughts at 0818 96 96 96 and 083-396-9696. Your voice message is welcome on that number two. Now, to... Uh, much more local and more important matters. Uh, Sarah Higgins, good morning to you. Hi, PJ. Hi, how are you? Hi. How is Shane before we start? Yeah, he's doing well now, doing very good. Um, yeah, I'm just trying to get back to normal life again, I suppose. Mm. Um, yeah, he's doing very good. He's picking up his strength and, yeah. Remind me what happened to him yeah. again. A tree fell on him, did it? Yeah, so... Um, on the 2nd of May, it was bank holiday weekend, um, we were out in our site, we'd just bought and he was clearing some trees with my dad. Um, he went to cut this one particular tree. Now, a lot of them, they're, they're sprouts or whatever you call them and um, they are very tall, you know, so mm-hmm. um, it was a dangerous job anyway. 
um, but never would have thought this was going to happen because when he did cut the tree, whatever way it fell, it rubbed down other, other trees or something and that pushed it back then coming back towards Shane, which trapped him in another tree. It kind of bounced back so, yeah, and fell on top total, of him, was it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. so just total freak accident. Um, yeah, so just thankfully my dad was so fast thinking and said, right, I'll run for my digger, get it off him. Yes. And went from there then, you know, to ring the ambulance and, yeah. Um, it was the air ambulance that came. Yeah, so it, so we actually were lucky enough. Um, a normal ambulance came and a fire fire truck, and um, at the same time that they landed. Next thing we look uh, look above, and there's a helicopter landing in the field beside us, and we were like, "What?" You know, and um, I just just couldn't believe it. You know, I never would have thought that we would have been so lucky to get an air ambulance, and um, straight away they just took over. Um, got him stabilised as much as they could. And, um, yeah, he was in the CUH within, I think it was about 40 minutes, maybe 45 minutes. Right, right. Yeah, and, so, um, and going by road, he could have gone by road. His injuries yeah. were serious, but as they say in the business, serious but not life-threatening. And he was stable at the scene, but it would have been a very rough transfer for him. Oh, yeah, it would have been very rough, yeah. And roads like on a bank holiday Monday coming back from like going through McCroom and things like that it would have been very busy that road is very busy especially on bank holidays um so like it would have taken a lot longer I think and the roads would be a lot twistier and it wouldn't have been a nice journey for him you know you were there yourself watching all this I was yeah well I didn't watch the tree come down my dad rang me to say that chain that the tree had fallen and and trapped chain and I just went straight over then, you know. Mm. I was there within about 10 minutes myself. Was he awake? Was he able to talk? No, no, he was unconscious. Right, yeah. right. You were scared, yeah. I'd say, scared. I mean, you have two small oh, kids. Yeah. You, were, you you thought your yeah. worst nightmares were happening, did you? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I just, I thought that was going to be our last moments together, to be honest. Yeah, but they took him off in the air ambulance and he was he was in the hospital a few weeks, wasn't he? Um, he actually was only in hospital a week. Okay. Yeah, so yeah, he he was like it's amazing what your body can do to know how fast you can turn around and stuff. He's, he's, he's just, yeah, he's so tough. He was, yeah, very tough, yeah. So he was he was in um intensive care for thirty six hours in a juice coma. Mm-hmm. Now they found it very hard to keep him in a coma because he's very strong and trying to sedate him and get it right and whatever. But once they got that right, um he was doing really well and just the sleeping and stuff like that was going to cure him. Yes. So yeah, yeah. So once Fantastic. he got out of that, I suppose he was back walking on the Thursday afternoon. He walked to the bathroom himself and yeah, it was just amazing. Yeah, amazing how fast yeah. he yeah. was in on the road to recovery. Joe, you, know? you you couldn't talk to him there at the scene. He was unconscious. No, at what point did you did you realise, Sarah, or did did anyone put their arm around you and say, "Look, he, he's going to be all right. Just give it time." Did they do that? Yeah, yeah. I suppose my dad did that, and yeah, just watching him on the stretcher, just you know, just lying there, yeah. just being worked on. You know, that's not something that would happen to Shane, you know? Yeah. Yeah, so... Mm. Now, 
you 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 want to say thank you to the air ambulance people yeah so you're going to do the mini marathon i am yeah yeah i'm going to do it it'll be my first time doing doing a mini marathon i'll give it a go i'm only going to walk but it's going to be enough i'm going to have good crack we're going to dress up in tutus and red and um we're going to wear lots of glitter and just be mad and yeah just just yeah. have a good good day of it you know it's all for a really good cause and to celebrate yeah you know the lives that they are saving you know the evidence that the community the, they're putting a team in and you're joining that team is that how it's going to work or are you setting up oh, your yeah. own team yeah no, no, um, I'm I'm going to be part of their team. So there's Jess and Lorraine um, and there's another few that are following me there now as well that have said that they'll they'll um, they'll join our team, you know, a couple of people from Facebook and Instagram and things like that. So hopefully we'll get a few more ladies um, can yeah. bring men to like they can try off. Yeah. No I've seen I've been um, at that marathon and I've seen some, some of the best looking women on the day are actually men. You know? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So, like, I'll take. I, I, you know, the bigger our team is, the be- the better. Like, you know. Fair enough. Fair enough. The, the, the two smallies, Sarah. I know your youngest is only eleven months, but your three-year-old yeah. had he any realization or he or she any realization of of what had happened to, to Daddy? Yeah. So he knows. He knows everything about it. Um. Yeah. So like straight away he. He's like very into helicopters and fire engines and all that, as you would be at three. But obviously when he could, like he didn't see anything, but he could hear them, whatever. He had no interest and kind of went into himself for a little bit. Um, but once Shane was out, then after a week, he started coming back around. Now, it took a couple of weeks for him to come back to himself. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we just kept talking to him and telling him what happened and, you know, that the air ambulance saved him and uh yeah so now he's you know anytime he sees a helicopter in the sky it's the air ambulance that saved daddy and yeah he's he's you know really after learning a lot for yeah. a three-year-old that you know shouldn't have been in that situation but yeah it's life it's real life you know did you know were you aware sarah of the the air ambulance because you said to me at the start you said you saw the helicopter coming into another field and he goes what the hell's going on here did you know yeah, there was an no. air ambulance no I I'd heard of the air ambulance but like to be honest I I thought that that was I, I didn't realise how close it was to us firstly and uh, like the base yeah. And I didn't realize, like, I, I thought that they'd only be around really. Now, I know we're up in the mountains in Ballinagree as well, but, like, I thought it'd be in the middle of, you know, the mountains, only kind of clear direction and things like that. I didn't realize it was that close to us to know that it was just on call. Yeah. When you ring 999, it goes straight into them as well. And if they're around, they'll come, you know, if it's yeah. if it's in an area where they can land and, you know, all that. Like, you know, it's so, a like, fantastic, it's, it's a fantastic really, service. really mind-opening. And yeah. I mean, the the importance of the fundraising that you're doing. I talked to them before. It costs about three thousand euro every time they take yeah. off to help somebody. Yeah, three, that, that, three, three and a half. I think three, yeah. three, three and a half thousand euro. That that's madness, you know. Um, like it should it should be government funded, really. You know, yeah. it's so important. It's saving yeah. people's lives. Yeah. In rural Ireland, anywhere really, but like you know, obviously it's it's more needed in rural Ireland um, 
but yeah, it's like it's a fantastic service and we just need to make more awareness of it. You just yeah. never know. Yeah. Like yeah. I said to Shane that morning, I said, will you will you come home early now tonight so we can, you know, relax a little bit and whatever. And yeah, you know, he didn't come home early that night. I know. Tell, <laughs> so, tell me so a bit about him. Just, How long do you know each yeah. other and all that? So we we know each other 13 years. Right. Well, I suppose a little bit more, a little bit more. But um, yeah, we're going out 13 years. Um yeah, so we're best friends. <laughs> yeah. All right. Yeah. And it's great that he's on the mend and, and everything like that. So in September, you're doing the, the mini marathon with the Air Ambulance crew to raise money. Three and a half grand per lift, per operation it costs. So hopefully you put as much money together as yeah. possible. As possible. Yeah. All right. Sarah, listen, look after yeah. yourself. So, give, um, give, give him our best. Yeah, right. just before I go, can I yes. just say thanks very much as well to my dad for doing what he did and, you know, acting so fast that morning as, or that evening as well, you know, going, grabbing his digger and just doing what he had to do. What's dad's name? That tree off him, you know. So my dad's name is John Higgins. Okay. All right. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, that was a big, big deal for him too. So, yeah, thanks very much. You're more than welcome. Cheers, Sarah. And the best in the marathon and the best with the fundraising and the best of good health and... Good recovery to Shane O'Keefe. Must be the most frightening thing ever happened. There you are. Uh, out middle of nowhere, literally. No disrespect to where they live, but literally middle of nowhere. And your partner is trapped under a tree and your dad is there trying to get the tree off him. And they're coming from all around and there's near ambulance. It's not the kind of thing anyone ever imagines going through. How come the government can fund things like the Greyhound Board and not the air ambulance, ask someone. on. The, you know what? If we knew the answer to that question, oh, I think we'd be running the country, not the government. All the stars on one show. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. My name is George Ezra. What's up, y'all? I'm Beyonce. Hi, this is Harry Styles. Hi, I'm Lizzo. Hi, Ed Sheeran here. The Hit Mix with Shane Bucks on your radio. Weeknights from 8 on Cork's 96FM. So every TD is required to fill out a form effectively once a year and let the Oroctus, let the doll, let the... Houses of Parliament know what his or her business and other interests are. And that's where the trouble started for Robert Troy, because his property portfolio, he owned 11 properties, all legally owned and all of that, but he owns 11 properties. He didn't fill his forms out properly. And that's where all this started. Adam Higgins, political correspondent of the Irish Sun. Adam, it was almost inevitable that he would go in the end, especially after Eamon Ryan stood up yesterday and said two investigations were needed. But outline for me where it started. He didn't fill his forms out properly and then claimed he made a mistake. Good morning. Good morning, PJ. Yes, you're right. So this all starts with the Dahl Register of Interest. Now, this Register of Interest, this form that we're talking about, the role of that form is to tell the public what skin each TD has in the game so that we're all on the same page and we can see who's representing who and if they have any business interests and, and that has to be upfront and clear. So 
Robert Troy never hid the fact that he was a landlord. He had registered properties on the register in the past. Some of the properties that we're talking about that went missing from the register had been registered in previous years, but there was a couple of properties that kind of disappeared. And so Robert Troy said that this was all an honest mistake. And he said that he didn't give the form the due diligence. He said he was embarrassed by this. And he said what happened was the form says that I've read the form myself in the past few days over and over and over again. And it says that you must declare interests, whether they're properties or businesses, between January 1st and 31st of December every year. So every day of the year. And Minister Troy read this as only the ones that you hold on December 1st. So properties that he sold in the middle of the year, he didn't register. And this is where he made the mistake. And this is the mistake that has ultimately led to his downfall. No misinterpretation, but in his day job as a junior minister, he was responsible for the following of regulation by other companies. And I would have thought, Adam, and you spend an awful lot more time in the doll than I ever have, I would have thought that if he has any doubts about how to fill his form out, there's someone he can ask, correct? Oh, 100%. There's many um, people that work in, in the doll that would be able to help with that sort of thing. And I think you're right to point out that the job that the that Robert Troy has resigned from is Minister of State of Trade Regulation. And when the minister himself can follow the rules of the doll and he's in charge of making those rules and policing the rules for in trade regulation for business, I think that becomes a very sticky situation. And then when you add on top of that, that this all relates to one of the most difficult topics for the government in housing, I think it was inevitable, as you pointed out earlier on, that Minister Troy would have to step down. It was inevitable five or six days ago, Adam, to be fair to any of us who were watching it. Why did it take so long? Well, I mean, some people have been surprised at how quickly this happened. I mean, this was 10 days ago the initial reports first came out. And there was this kind of drip feed of information that really didn't help Minister Troy's case. He did try to save everything with a big tell-all interview on the RTE on Monday where he kind of, a big mea culpa, apologised, said he was embarrassed by everything and tried, even gave new information about how many properties he had, how many uh, half payments he was getting from the state for, for tenants. And he kind of gave out all this information. But even after that, more revelations came to do with claims around fire certs that he then clarified again and said he didn't need these fire certs for a specific building in Dublin. And it just kept going on and on and on. And when, as the famous saying says, when you're explaining, you're losing. And I think Minister Troy has been explaining a hell of a lot over the past few days. Now, I, I was thinking to myself, one of the reasons it took so long Adam was, you know, in the, in the back corridors of power, they, they realised two or three days ago that, that he just wasn't going to get through this. But in three weeks or so, there's a budget and they need his vote. So they need him to go, but they don't need to make an enemy out of him. Would that have played any role here? I know the point you're trying to make, but really I think you're losing the personalities involved in here. Both the Taoiseach and Tanish just spoke really very highly of Robert Troy. Mm. He's, by all accounts, a very popular TD within the Fianna Fáil party and within the government. A very hard-working TD in um, the Department of Business. And I think they're probably standing by him on that basis. I don't know if it comes solely down to them needing the vote. Was there ever a question that Robert Troy, if he stepped down, would leave Fianna Fáil's uh, party whip? I don't think so. And I don't think that ever really kind of came into it. Right. So where do we go from here now? Obviously, there's a job to be got. Uh, and is it, is it over now? Or are the Sunday papers and people like yourselves in the sun, are you still looking for the next chapter? Or does this close it? 
Uh, I think this is the beginning of the end of the saga of the siege of Troy for a, the, one of the headlines we've been using for a couple of days. I think there will still be questions to be asked. The, the opposition parties still want to see uh, evidence that, um, one, that all uh, Minister Troy's properties were properly registered with the RTB. They want to see proof about these fire suits that he said uh, that they weren't needed. And they've also called for uh, proof that he's completely tax compliant on the properties, especially the one that he said he received cash payments for. So that evidence is still wanted. There may still be questions in the doll about this, but I think it will come up again. And But I think the key thing that the opposition will, I suppose, use this um, as is to highlight the government's failures in housing. And they will claim that this is all part of the Fianna Fáil, Fianna Gael agenda of using the private industry to try to sort housing and relying on the private industry too much, as opposed to, you know, using social housing and, and building public housing in in a big scale like Sinn Féin would, would argue. And what I was just observing at the top of the programme, Adam, that August is really a month that Michal Martin won't be fond of. This is three Augusts in a row that it's been very sticky for him in government. It has. It's scandal uh, and controversy after uh, August each each year. And I think... One of the reasons that, that Minister Troy may have stepped down um, so quickly during this scandal is that this month and the next coming weeks are going to be very busy and very difficult for the government. We have, first of all, a series of parliamentary party thinkings where all the TDs will get together and yeah. the, the likes of myself and the political reporters will go along and ask questions. And then you have the run-up to the budget where there will be many... Um, opportunities to question ministers and TDs and everything else. And I think if this had a kept dragging on into all that and distracted from that, it would have been a very difficult time for the government and, of course, difficult for Minister Troy. So he's decided to step down to, to prevent that distraction, I suppose. Okay. Do you think it's going to go away in the eyes of the public, lastly? No, I think there will be still questions to be asked. I think it will. there will... Minister Troy does still have to give some explanations on things. And I think then obviously you have the, the question of the successor, who Michal Martin appoints to that role. Now, early early names have been flown around. It's really probably too early to say, but the likes of Derek Cleary's name has come up among Fianna Fáil circles mm-hmm. and whether uh, Michal Martin will go back there. But I think it will probably be a couple of weeks away from uh, a brand new appointment there. All right, listen, Adam, always good to catch up with you. Adam Higgins, political correspondent of the Irish Sun. The resignation of Robert Troy came last evening. He was the minister responsible for regulations. He blamed the opposition. He blamed the media. He he said he won't apologise for being a landlord. He's going down fighting. That's one thing for sure. He's going down fighting. And he says the narrative that's out there that he and other landlords are all villains simply wrong. He, he makes no apology for being a landlord. So he doesn't. Look, there's nearly 80 of them across the Erochtus. He says, I'm not a person of privilege. I've not been brought up with a silver spoon in my mouth. I've worked for everything that I have. Taoiseach said he'd accepted Mr. Troy's resignation. Both himself, both the Taoiseach and the Taunished, I mean, all and Leo, both spoke out about how great he was, and how great he is. Your thoughts are welcome at 0818969696. Is it over in your eyes? Politically, it's probably over, as Adam says, the beginning of the end for this one. But is it over? Are you satisfied that he's gone? Is, is that enough? If he was a Cork TD, 
would we be looking for more? He made a point at one one stage that he didn't like the idea that people were turning up at his wife's mother's front door looking for a story. I don't know about that. Just something else we... Yeah, um, here's a landlord TD and, and all connected to it and there's 80-something landlord TDs between our landlord members of the Oroctus between the Dáil and the Shannad. And we read the story yesterday that um, Santina Cawley's mom, Bridget... She's facing homelessness herself in, I think, two weeks' time. And we had Olin Ring, Councillor Olin Ring, on the show yesterday about another family facing homelessness. And in the midst of all this, you've 80 landlords in the Doyle. And you have, and this is the, for me, this is the worst bit that emerged in the last couple of days. Two previous housing ministers have been asked by Robert Troy, this is in one of the papers, asked by Robert Troy to go easy on landlords. So, <laughs> that's, kind of, you know, here's a landlord TD with 11 properties, and we now know that he he asked two previous ministers for housing to go easy on landlords. And he says, there's nothing wrong with being a landlord. I don't want to be vilified as landlords. Not all landlords are bad people. I think we know that, Mr. Troy. I think we do know that not all landlords are bad people. But when you're a TD and a landlord and you don't properly sign in what you own and what you operate and what you benefit from, and you're the minister who's responsible for other people following regulations, that's your job. Good luck. 
on Saturday mornings or Saturday afternoons. Or now, because of the way uh, a lot of courses have been done online, uh, I want you to do this, you know, over the weekend or after work. That's where the problem comes in. Mm-hmm. That's not allowed. It's not allowed, but realistically, Richard, what choice do you have if you're, if you're like, under the video on your Instagram, people are saying, well, if you don't do the course, they won't roster you for well, work. If, well, now, that's, that, that, that ends up causing huge issues in relation to, um, you know, claims down to the WRC. If it is what we call um, a toolbox course, and this is a phrase that goes back to construction sites, but we it's now used generally around as if it is, you know, this is a new procedure we're bringing into the office or this is new new procedures we're putting in place and we want you to, to train you up on that. That should be done during office hours. That's the position on it. If you want somebody to do something after office hours, then the contract has to provide for you doing overtime because it is overtime and it can't interfere with your rest periods. Right. And that's the simple position. on. And if somebody says, well, look, you want me to do a course, uh, you know, at lunchtime every Tuesday for the next uh, month and I'm not going to get my lunch break. Oh, well, sure, you can have a sandwich while you're watching the screen. Then that's a claim to the WRC because you're not getting your rest breaks. So right. nothing wrong with doing a course, but you have to make sure that the employee gets the proper rest breaks. If a course uh, comes with a fee, Richard, are you or your employer responsible? Well, normally it's going to be the employer. Um, if it is one where you turn around and you say, look, I'd like to do a diploma in whatever, you know, aircraft leasing, the employer might say, well, look, you know, that's going to cost 2000 or 3000 I'll pay 50% of it. But that's the employee coming and asking. If the employer says, I want you to do this course, then the employer pays for it. Yeah. It's the normal certification that's required. Is, is, uh, it, is, uh, it, is it becoming... I mean, sorry, go ahead, sorry. Go ahead. Like for, for example, for solicitors here in Ireland, take that as an example. Solicitors do 28 hours of what they call CPD, Continuing Professional Development. Mm. That's paid for by their offices, not by the solicitor. You have to do it, by the way, to get your practicing certificate for next year. But that's a, a cost that the that the office picks up because it's a requirement for you, for you to be able to continue to work. Mm. Now, in your video, you also said that it, it may de- depend on your on your contract. If you're a full time worker, your rights may depend on your contract. So so that gets into that strange space, doesn't it? Where the law of the land employment wise says something, but you may well have a, a signed contract that says something else that can be problematic. Yeah, well, if your contract says that you'll do overtime, if you're if you're an hourly paid worker, then you pay, get paid that as overtime. If you're a salaried worker, then generally speaking, you'll be paid more than the national minimum wage. And provided the employer gives you 24 hours notice in writing to do it, and it doesn't impact on your uh, rest periods, then normally the employer can insist that you do it. Mm. That's term- the way. Go on. In, in terms of how it's, it's set up, it's not best practice. To be honest with you, the best practice is that the training should always be taking place during the working day so that so that it's it's there. It's part and parcel of it. And what happens is now that employees 
are, are, you know, are saying, look, hold on a moment. You know, I'm, I finished work at five o'clock and now you want me doing a two hour course. Mm-hmm. You know, and and that's the difficulty, and a lot of the difficulty is the practical side. Are they actually getting any decent training out of it, or are they just sitting there on the with a face on them? Yeah. You know, you, tra- if you're paying for training, you want people to be trained. Yes. If you do get that two hours, say in the afternoon, say Tuesday, two to four for argument's sake, boss is paying for the course, it's in your normal working day, you've had your lunch break, everything is fine, but the two hours of work that was supposed to be done between two and four, still has to be done, what then? Well, again, it depends. Is that going to have to be, is that going to be done as overtime when you come back? Are you supposed to be sort of finishing at half past five? Or is it going to be scheduled some other stage? Overtime always in Irish law under the Organisation of Working Time Act has to be given. You have to get 24 hours notice of it. Right. And that's the that's the issue of it. And it's a minimum of 24 hours notice. Now, most employees, by the way, won't object to doing a course if they think it's going to help them. Um, and knowing that, by the way, you know, on Tuesday going forward for the next month, I'm going to have to do a half an hour or an hour's overtime. They're not going to object to that, provided they get enough notice of it and they can organise their, their, you know, their family life and the, the rest of their life around it. Right. That's the basis of giving people proper notification. Okay. So, so your employer can't actually come up to you at 10 o'clock in the morning and say, Richard, I need you to stay till 7 o'clock. They can't, they can't do that or they can't force you to do that. No, they can't. It's a breach of the, the, the Working Time Act. And if the employer says, well, if you don't do that, you won't get rostered next week. Well, then you're into, uh, you know, one of the very good employment law solicitors that's down in Cork with I'm being, I've got a threat of penalisation for raising a right under the Organisation of Working Time Act and that's down to the WRC and that's regarded as one of the more serious breaches of employment law where an employee gets threatened. Yeah, question has just... Or standing up for their rights. Question has come in here, um, which is, and it's, it, it's the Safe Pass, the Safe Pass courses, I'm sure you're familiar. The company want me to yeah. do the Safe Pass on Saturday. It's not paid. If you do it during the week, they pay for the course, but you don't get a day's pay as well. Is this legal? It, it, again, it depends on your contract, but normally the Safe Pass course is one that the employee needs to have a safe pass to be able to take up a job. And if their contract has been drafted correctly, then unfortunately, very often, they have to do it in their own time. Uh, So, for example, if you're going to uh, for a job on a construction site, they will say, you can't start the job here till you have done the safe pass. I see. And so it's a, that's one that, that the employee themselves has to have. Uh, but most good construction companies will actually run those courses during the working day. And it's just treated as part of the working day uh, for the very simple reason that it's it's good health and safety training and it's uh, and it avoids the potential of accidents. And that's good management. Nobody wants accidents on sites. And who's liable for the cost of the safe pass, Richard? That's always a question question mark. There is a view that the employee is responsible because it's a requirement on the employee to be able to take up the job initially. So therefore, continuing with it is an issue sometimes that it is the employee's obligation to take that up. All right. Listen, always good to speak with you uh, on the opinion line. Thank you very much, Richard Grogan, employment lawyer. You'll find his videos, and there are dozens and dozens of them at this stage, on Instagram, Richard Grogan Solicitor. Uh, that's the law, and that's a fact. Is his um, 
catchphrase, 100 and something thousand followers he has now and doing new videos every day. Thank you, Richard. 0818 96 96 96. If you ask to do a course, you're entitled to do it in your in, in, in company time, not your, your own time. Boss can't actually force you to do it in your own time. And if he does, then you need to get overtime for that. And that all needs to be arranged with you. 0818 96 96 96. A couple of your comments have come in. But I'll do the comments, actually. I'll, I'll, I won't do the song there, Fiona, because I'm running a bit short on time. Just some stuff that's coming. Oh, yes, I meant to tell you this. Yesterday, remember Mick had this awful experience where the wife and daughter, there was a bag of clothes that were meant to go to the recycling bin. And whoever took up the bag of clothes to the recycling bin took the wrong bag of clothes to the recycling bin. They were clothes for the holidays. So someone was facing being out on Tantity Island next week with no clothes. Or with a load of old clothes in another bag. And Mick was not. Mick was, Mick was quite concerned. Turns out that yesterday afternoon um, it got sorted they got back to us around 2 o'clock they were very very nice we're meeting them today to get the clothes back and that's good because there's war between the mother and daughter it was the wife's friend it actually happened to the wrong bag of clothes went to the recycling bin and Mick was frantic but it's all sorted it's all sorted and they'll have bikinis for the beach which is so important 0818 96 96 96 the cost of school books I, I don't know how much they're costing because I haven't had to buy them for quite a long time um, they are expensive, this ridiculous idea that six pages of a science book change in the course of the year and you have to have the brand new science book that crack is still going on school books are too too expensive there are parts of the world where school books are free and there's a protest outside Easton's today Mary Claire, good morning Good morning PJ You've three children, so you know all about the cost of school books, how much have you had to shell out this August? Uh, surely do. So I have one uh, for junior infants. I've one for sixth class, and I've one for third year. Um, and and I can tell you, as they get older, the costs continue to increase. Um, the cost for one starting school is extortionate um, because everything has to be bought new. Um, every item of uniform, including crested jumpers, etc. Um, school books, in particular, are absolutely crippling. Um, many of those cost about thirty euro a pop. Um, and when you add that up before you even uh, look at buying uh, uniforms and shoes and other materials, etc., um, the allowance that people receive doesn't even come close to covering it. Yeah, now they did put up the, the allowance this year, but like you said, it still isn't isn't coming close. Th- there are countries where school books are free. That's right. Yeah, in France and Belgium, um, books and, and even materials are, are free. So of course, the argument is that we would we would be demanding. Um, free because the notion of free education here is an absolute joke um, it's not free and while that allowance was welcomed uh, to take some of the pressure off for some people it was a forced decision under public pressure um, and it also does nothing to help um, other working class families who are already crippled with the current cost of living and uh, are not eligible for that allowance it actually amounts to half a million children who are not even covered I can remember my time with Back to School, which is a few years behind us now, and I thank my lucky stars every August that it is behind us. Because even 10 years ago, 
was punishingly expensive and now in the middle of an economic crisis it's even more expensive so you've got school bags to worry about school books school clothes school shoes on top of soaring ESB bills and soaring gas bills like can you can you make ends meet this August Marie Claire? Uh, no, not quite. At this stage now, we're down to nil in the in the current bank account and just waiting for the next children's allowance to come in to cover the last few things. Really? It's that tight? Yeah, it is. It's that tight. And uh, and it's 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 just unbelievable um, in terms of the back to school allowance as well. The household income limits haven't actually changed at all to reflect uh, the cost of living crisis. Right. So so what is the limit? Like, do you qualify? <laughs> Uh, no, I don't qualify. the The limit with three children is about seven hundred euro. Right. That's for two. That's for two parents, and and you must be on a qualifying payment as well. Right. So you don't qualify. So the hundred quid isn't worth a course to you. No, none of it is. No, exactly. I don't qualify at all for the uh, for the allowance. Um. So we are absolutely crippled with the full cost of of back to school. Okay. What time is the protest? It's at outside Easton's in Patrick Street. It is. It's on Patrick Street at, at a quarter to one, um, and um, I suppose it, it's not a protest as such. Um, you know, I felt and others felt that something had to be done. So we discussed this with Mick Barry and um, and and arranged to have a small gathering on Patrick Street, um, where we'll have leaflets distributed and uh, petitions signed, and we hope to highlight the issues and the need for real change in the education system. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it is hard. So, so we we. It's hardly Easton's fault, I suppose. You you have no beef with them, I take it. Mm, not as not not as such. We're we're highlighting the overall issue and the government's failure to address this issue. Yeah, yeah. No, they're, they're so we we yeah. Go on. We do encourage people to come down and uh, and and support and and tell us their stories and uh, and and sign the petition and, and we'll talk to them. Yeah. Yeah. Someone is telling me here that Easton's is still closed on Patrick Street. Is it the Victoria Hotel building you're going to be down to the other one, the small one down there? Which one? Um, no, it's the it's it's the it's, it's outside the big one. Yeah. Okay. I think they're supposed to reopen soon, but I think they're still closed. However, it's not it's not your beef isn't with Easton's. They they have to sell it. The the, the beef is that that the books cost so much there and everywhere else for for families. Thanks very much, uh, Marie Claire, and that that demonstration today. Oh wait, one eight ninety six ninety six ninety six on the air ambulance. How come the government can fund things that we answered that one that the Greyhound board and not the ambulance? Very very good. On Robert Troy. PJ, I wonder if TDs and senators declare all their property interests to the revenue commissioners. That, to my mind, is a far more interesting question. Yes. I bet he fills the expenses form out with due diligence, says that. Bet. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, Kate says, I wonder will there be a rush of other TDs regularising their property declarations now? It would be very interesting to see if those people who backed him end up amending their paperwork. Not wrong. Uh, I think PJ should put up a poll in the event of Troy resigning. Should be Hall Martin resign as well. Well, some people think he should, but you can be sure he won't, lads. He certainly won't. Uh, Michal, this is Kevin. Michal Martin and Leo showed a complete lack of leadership over the whole thing, showing they'll go to any lengths to stay in power as long as they can. But the truth is, I care about putting oil in my heating, about keeping the lights on, about food in the fridge. And some kind of social life. I really don't care about Robert Troy. 
and I don't think anybody does, which is a good point. People are more worried, Kevin, about the cost of school books, as we've just spoken about, the cost of food, the cost of electricity, the cost of gas, the cost of trying to have some bit of a life left at the weekend. I think to the point where an awful lot of people just don't give a Tupney course about Robert Troy, which which is sad, really. Stream the freshest hits of 2022 on the Hit Mix. Or find the biggest workout bangers on the Fit Mix. The Quartz 96 FM Hit Mix and Fit Mix are streaming live right now. Streaming live right now. Download the Quartz 96 FM app. Listen on your smart speaker. Or go to 96fm.ie. The lines are live. And we're ready to talk. Can we just talk? Call 0818 966 966. Text or WhatsApp 083 396 96 96. Email opinion at 96fm.ie. The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. On Cork's 96FM. Michael was on to us. Now, Michael reminds us or remembers that we were talking here about hedgehogs a few weeks ago and as we come into September you'll see more of the little divils around the place I love them they're just so cute and if they manage to find their way into your garden or into your ditch um, just leave out some cat food or something for them or actually a few cornflakes in the morning they'd eat them but Michael says, and if, if this is the Michael I think it is, he lives not far from me. You've mentioned hedgehogs. A few days ago, I went out at dusk to the back door and saw this object on the grass right in front of me. Took me a few seconds to realize it was a hedgehog, a fine, fat hedgehog. How it got into an enclosed garden, I don't know. Two of our daughters, five cats, are absolutely mesmerized by it and just sit there staring the hedgehog comes out now after dark every night and tucks into the food left out robbing the cat's food uh, dry food packet food doesn't matter it must be one of the best fed hedgehogs in Cork at the moment they're fattening themselves up now Michael um, before they start in the autumn time they start looking for a place to bed down for the winter so keep leaving the grub out for him and he's a little friend and he'll come into your garden he'll do no harm at all they eat slugs I think so you'll have no slug problems and just let him there and he'll find a way to go he won't sleep in the garden he'll, he'll find a way to go and he'll find some how did he get into an enclosed garden? that's the miracle of being a hedgehog your enclosed garden means little or nothing to them they'll get in if they want in they'll get in thanks for that someone else was on to us about brambles now this I listen all the summer we were hearing about not cutting ditches and verges and we were encouraged at one point to leave our lawns grow. Do you remember No Mow May? Which a lot of people did and then some people just left it grow for the whole summer. Something of a green agenda. Some people were just lazy. It doesn't matter. They left them grow. (laughs) But now and I've noticed this there are brambles sticking out of ditches everywhere. Walking up Maryborough Hill the other day and a big huge bramble like it must be seven or eight feet long on the on the footpath in front of me, sure it can get caught in anything. And I was out for a walk, says this Jan, I think, yeah, out for a walk around the marina and Baron Temple and Baron Lock. A lot of brambles and long stringy ones coming out of hedges onto the road. 
And I worry about people who mightn't have good eyesight and they might get caught and injured or they get caught up in a, a baby's buggy and they're all thorns. Yeah, it's a kind of a consequence of the green thing where we didn't cut ditches and verges and hedges for the summer because we wanted to, you know, let the wild stuff develop for the pollinators and that's all very good. But now we've got brambles everywhere and that's just part of autumn. Oh, eight, but it starts on Thursday. Oh, eight, one, eight, ninety six, ninety six, ninety six. The way we travel for holidays is changing. Now, for me, it changed a few years ago because I've been doing this self-booking and self-packaging for, for quite a number of years. Um, once I figured out how to do it myself, and yes, I have saved money, there is a lot of planning in it, there is a lot of work in it, but it's kind of the way forward. So we're going to be doing more of our own planning. The days of the cheap package holiday are probably... They're numbered at least. Owen Corrie, travel journalist, joins me to discuss this for a little while. The days of the cheap package holiday, Owen, they're, they're probably numbered if they're not gone. Good morning. Good morning to you, PJ. Well, it's under pressure because of fuel prices. That's the biggest single factor. Um, everything at the prices on the ground, the hotel, your transfers, all of those, they're been rising. We've seen that rise during the summer. We've seen shortage of hotel beds, not just famously in parts of Ireland, not just Dublin, but other parts Galway have had a problem and Killarney, but they also have cropped up in different parts of Europe. So are we going to be paying more for our package holiday? Yes. Is it still very good value? Yes. And are there still terrific bargains to be found? Yes. If you manage to weasel, to get yourself in on the edges of the peaks, it's all about peaks and troughs, and it's a very unforgiving product. The price goes very high when demand is high, school holidays, all of that. And if you can get yourself in on the edges of that, you can still find very, very good value. And, and with small children, it probably is the safest way to do it. Just go through a brochure or through a travel agent and do it that way. Now... When I started doing it myself, which at this stage is probably seven or eight years ago, immediately I began to save money. I can't argue that. But there is a risk involved. You have to be double careful with everything you do, don't you? Right. The saving money thing is uh, very apparent when you look at your internet prices. It's when you start putting in the complex, the squidgy bits at the end, that while the price of a direct flight, you can, you know, let's face it, Doing your own booking, the most important thing you have is control. You have access to all these fares, these options. Oh, I'll go through a third airport to save 20 euro or 30 euro. And then you start making that booking. And as you say, it's time consuming. It also gets a bit more difficult when you start factoring in the other things you have to worry about. The main things people going on a package holiday have to worry about are three things. They're just the the flight, the accommodation, and the transfer. The transfer in a package holiday is looked after. Um, There's no real cheaper way of doing a transfer than doing it as part of your package holiday. Mm. Sometimes the hotel uh, can be cheaper when you're booking direct. But you've got to remember, a package holiday, it's done either by a tour operator. Everything was by a tour operator in the old days. Nowadays, travel agents do a thing called dynamic packaging where they do the flight transfer and accommodation accommodation for you. Yeah. But they're going to be booking 10,000, a tour operator is going to be booking 10,000 rooms in the season. Um, some of the tour operators like TUI own their own hotels. So if you're buying one room and if you're buying 10,000 rooms, your price is going to be different. The same can apply with 
aircraft. If you're buying them in bulk, you buy the seats in bulk, you get them cheaper. So while you say, okay, book online, no middleman, nobody taking 10% or 15%, and that was a, there was a lot of people taking a percentage here and there in the old days, but it sounds like it should be automatically cheaper, but then you put in at the other side the fact that someone is buying in bulk and they have that, that command for a lower price that a supplier has uh, when they're supplying in bulk. Um, that, that can balance out the price. I noticed, for instance, a lot of Orlando packages uh, this summer. Mm. Once, uh, if you went through your travel agent, there's two or three major operators on that. Uh, American Holidays Tour America, the most prominent in Ireland. It could work out 150, 200 euro cheaper than doing it yourself. Now, there are also the all that uh, extra stuff about what hotels are available close to where you want to go. Obviously, Orlando, the only reason we're going there is theme parks. A lot of Spain, it's access to the beach and closeness to water parks. So it's a complex process. And while travel agents uh, and tour operators, they won't like me saying this, um, they ran with the margin. They were pretty much in control. They had all the information. They had all the access to tickets until somebody invented the internet without telling them. Um, they were taking very high margins in the past. Most tour operators and travel agents are operating on a very small margin now. It's basically turning it over out of volume and they have managed to move in and compete on the price because otherwise they wouldn't stay in business. Yeah. Now, something that people do as well, and again, I've done it myself several times, is you book through a lettings platform, a rental platform. Now, Airbnb is obviously one of the biggest in the world. I've never gone through Airbnb myself, but I know my daughter has several times. Holiday Lettings is another one. Home to Go is another one. And I found one recently called VRBO. And of course, there's the old favourite booking.com. There are, there are advantages and pitfalls, aren't there? There are, and they're all very different. I mean, booking.com uh, rules the world. Airbnb rules the uh, self-rental or the, the small, the individual homeowner letting a room. There are about, uh, there are over 200 competitors in both of those areas. But you've got to remember that uh, instead of, Booking.com doesn't cut out the middleman. It creates another middleman. And very often they're taking 20% of your overall price. The reason that people use them is it's very convenient. It's a bit complicated to go directly to a hotel. Hoteliers will be listening to us this morning. The Irish Hotels Federation and the Hoteliers of Ireland have worked really hard to create an alternative to the Booking.com, uh, the, uh, the, the, the online uh, travel agents, uh, because their Booking.com isn't the only one. We're just picking it as the bigger one. But they are trying to create their own alternative. But their biggest problem is your customer finds it difficult to find the individual hotel website. There is always as good a price as Booking.com to be got direct from the hotel. Mm -hmm. If you contact them on their website or if you phone them, you will get as good a deal as Booking.com are offering you. But the reality is that that's extra time, extra hassle. And people go through Booking.com because it's easy and it's transformed the way we we, uh, book uh, the website, um, there are other, Trivago.ie is a very good website for price comparison and it shows you the different uh, hotel prices. Mm. Uh, sometimes Booking.com and with some of its competitors, uh, Kayak and uh, tri- um, even uh, Last Minute and all of these people will have 
small differences in price, maybe two, three, four euro in differences in price for the same hotel. Trivago puts all that together. It's a good aggregator size. If you have time, go yeah. back to the hotel directly and see if they'll match the rate or even give you a better rate. Very often they will. And the reason they will is they don't have to pay that percentage to the middleman. Now, the percentage to the middleman can be 4 or 5%, but it can also be 30%. Yes. For the smaller hotels, they find the rates are rapacious. Now, there's also all sorts of sharp practice going on, PJ. Really, stuff that would be illegal if I was to stop you in the street and try and sell you something. But it's somehow because of the internet, it, it, does, it falls just within the bounds of the law. A very good example is what happens to some Irish hotels, and it happens to hotels abroad. If somebody replicates their website, puts up a website that looks almost exactly like theirs, sells you the same room and takes 20% and passes on the booking as if they're doing the, the uh, hotel a favour. It has happened to me for a West Warrant hotel. I thought I'd booked direct with the hotel and found I'd gone through somebody in Oregon, or no, sorry, in um, Massachusetts. Um, and they took 20% of the price. And it breaks my heart because I do think that if you're booking, particularly as an Irish holiday maker in an Irish hotel, what money you spend should go directly to them. Yeah, yeah, I had a similar experience. Well, a similar experience, but I went up to the north in the two years that we couldn't uh, leave the island. And the first year I booked where we stayed through booking.com and we were really impressed with it. And when I was paying the landlady when we were leaving, uh, I, she, I said, can I book again for next year? And she gave me a price, xbooking.com, and I saved 300 euro. Yeah. There and then. The, the, and hotel then. Will, the hotel can give that percentage that they give to booking to the customer. They're very happy to do so because very often it means repeat business for them. The future is, I think people are nervous, I, I, Owen, they, they think it's going to get out, like some of the flights that would normally not be advertised until say January are up now for next summer, but I don't think they're selling yet because they're very expensive. Like if you take Ryanair, Ryanair have already posted their Canary Islands schedule for next summer, but people will wait for a sale. Will there be sales this year, do you think? All the sales. The reason there are all the sales, PJ, is that it's not a human being that decides, oh, we have to do a sale here. It's the computer, the computer bots that Ryanair have and their tremendous, um, their, their, their back office system. It is formidable. It's it, 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 one of the reasons the huge success of the airline is uh, the back office booking system is so strong and so good and so nimble. And at some stage, it will evaluate how many seats are selling. As you said, if you look at next summer schedule, it's quite expensive. Now, if for if you know a certain percentage, this is all closely guarded secret, but we can speculate that by Christmas they've expected a certain number of those seats to have sold, and if it's running behind the norm, which in Ryanair's case would be back 2018, 2019, if it's running behind the norm of what they would, the price drops. If it's running above the norm, the price goes up a little bit. They, w- they will catch, they will put a, a flight in the system and catch the, there are a couple of early birds who really, really need to be somewhere. They need to be somewhere for a wedding or a communion or a match or a sporting event, a concert. And they will sort of say, okay, well, I'm traveling next April, but I really need to be there. And let's say um, 
the, the you know the certain number of seats have sold, but not as many as Ryanair expected. Mm. Coming up to January and February, that same price for that same flight in April can drop, and then when people run to us, it can float back up again overnight. It can, watching it from a customer perspective is an inexact science because you're not exactly sure what the what the demand for the flight at the price is. But Ryanair have it to a T. It's like trying to beat the bookies. They will have it worked out that when that plane takes off, 95% of those seats will be sold. That means fewer than 10 empty seats on the 189-seat aircraft, which is their traditional 737. It's a little bit more for the new Boeing 737 MAX. But, but, But it means that they have it worked out they're to a T. Yeah. They're very good. Their bots are very good. And then sometimes a human intervenes. When a human, the, the most uh, spectacular time a human intervenes is, let's say, Munster get drawn uh, to play in France. Yes. And somebody moves in and makes sure there's no uh, 1999 flights on those uh, prices on those flights. Yes. They get as much as they can they when do. the they when do. the when when the sun is out. They'll make hay, yeah. and when it's raining, they reduce the price. Oh, and lastly, the all-in. Now, personally, I'd rather I'd rather eat my own eyeballs off a spoon than go to one of these all-in, never leave the resort type holidays. But they're popular, particularly with people with small children. Are there there are there days numbered though? No, it's an interesting one that people don't, uh, tourist boards and countries don't really like them. But they're a bit like cruise lines. They don't like having cruise lines because everyone stays on board, eats on board, they don't spend. But it's a good way of getting people into your country. And different countries have different approaches to it. It's not a big thing in Europe. In fact, some of the countries that have all-inclusives and some of the Canary Islands have had all-inclusives uh, some of the uh, Spanish island, Spanish ma- mainland but and the Balearics have also had that. They've sort of moved against it. There was a lot of publicity about the maximum number of drinks you could have and things like that. The, the big, big resorts like to corral people, keep them in the resort. Uh, tourist boards and countries like people to move out of the hotel. They need their local markets, people selling things. Mm. They need their restaurants and their bars. It's great. And it's much better tourist experience, as you said. What I've seen is the all-inclusive getting bigger. You will have, uh, for instance, Hotel Botanico in Tenerife have 13 different restaurants, I think, yeah. on board. So you can spend the whole time there moving from restaurant to restaurant within your resort. And there are countries like Dominican Republic where the entire... Uh, it's been huge stadium uh, hotels... Uh, stadium resorts where you, you they try and keep you there and they give you a day trip out to see something and that's basically it. You're 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 you've got this armband around your 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 hand and you're a prisoner uh, there for the two for how long you stay there. But they're, they 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 chances of getting uh, business for an, a restaurant outside the business are very small. But there's there's a certain taste and you you said at the very beginning the small family. If you've got small children, a resort where you don't have to move, a resort where there's children's pools and adult pools, where there's play parks and zip lines for the teenagers and all of that, that's exactly where you want to be. And I've seen that a very solid product um, doing well among the family market. And uh, tour operators um, 
and they're three or four, like Sunway and Tui, um, that operate out of Ireland. That they do very, very good business out of that because no matter what you do, no matter how often you go on the internet and try and work out your family flights and then your family transfers and to find a hotel that can even start to compete with those sort of facilities, you're not going to find it. Yeah, you can't really because they've got it all sewn up. Owen, thank you very much. We'll talk again, if no doubt. Owen Corrie, a travel journalist on the future of holidays. One thing to watch, actually, that happened to us this year for the first time ever. I use a platform quite a lot called Holiday Lettings, and it's very reliable, and it's your money is safe, and, and your, your accommodation always turns up. But this year, where we went, the owner had loads of cupboards and places locked up when we went there with his own stuff inside in it because he only leaves for three months of the summer to rent it out to people so every time we opened a drawer there was something in it belonging to the owner so where are we supposed to put our stuff it was a small thing but it just happened can we just talk the Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. Text or WhatsApp now. 083-396-9696. On Quartz 96 FM. We had a call during the week from a lady called Brida. And Brida cares for her husband, who is unwell. They're both uh, relatively elderly, but they quite sprightly at the same time. But Brida cares for her husband, But she's trying to get some respite care for him to give herself a break. And she's trying to get respite since February. And she said she's one of a number of women that she knows in the same situation, caring for husbands in poor health, can't get respite. There's an entitlement there to four weeks and the terms and conditions are complex enough, but the government will pay €625, you pay the rest, but you have to find the place. And there don't seem to be any places. And Breda, trying since February, this is August, and she said carers will get sick from overwork, and then the whole situation will just get worse. Let me talk first to Deputy Colm Bork. Colm, good morning to you. Morning, PJ. Her situation, it's kind of sad. She's just trying to get a break. Get, yeah. set, put, leave her husband somewhere safe for a week or two and she takes a little break for herself. The money's there, the scheme is there, but there are no places. Okay, can I just explain to you, just in relation to respite, it's now known as the Care Support Grant, so it's €1,850 per annum. So that's paid out automatically um, to carers, okay? So it's 1850 per annum. Right. So the whole idea of it is that, you know, a person would be able to get um, their loved one into a nursing home for a period of two weeks. Now, I was on to a number of nursing homes over the last, since I got the call from you yesterday. There was one facility um, that had 12 respite bites and it wasn't, it wasn't able to take people for seven weeks. Now that's resolved. It was just about having the necessary staff and the support medical team in place. Now that's resolved. All of the other nursing homes that were on to this morning don't appear to have a problem about taking people in for on respite. And um, I'm a bit concerned that this person has been waiting since February because, for instance, I was on to one nursing home they went up to the hospital on Tuesday to look at the care plan for 
a person that was being discharged from hospital and that person is now inside the nursing home this morning. So the beds are there. The question is, um, you know, are, is this person getting the support um, from whatever backup support she has looked for yeah. because the beds are definitely there and that's what's being said to me by the various nursing homes. I was talking to um, the chair of um, Nursing Homes Ireland in the southern region <clears throat> and he's chairperson there's over 60 nursing homes in the Cork Kerry region. He hasn't heard of a complaint from the nursing homes about you know, um, they being under pressure for respite beds. I also talked to Michael McLeodin in Dublin, who's um, head of uh, one of the people in charge of the nursing homes are, and then again he had the same response. He'd look, rang around a few nursing homes for me today. Um, so I think this issue um, should be able to, we should be able to resolve it. Yeah. Um, the beds are there. Now there was one complaint made to me um, by one of the nursing homes, and that's about whether or not. You know, you know, if you agree, if a nursing home agrees to take um, people on respite, then the HSE pays them, as I understand it, for the full 12 months, whether the bed is occupied or not occupied. And I understand that there's a, there is a, maybe a problem in that they may have the beds spread in too many nursing homes. They might be better off focusing on a number of nursing homes so that we can have the proper structures in place. Mm. You see, there is a problem as well in Ireland, and I've been on about this for literally nearly seven or eight years at this stage, and that's about, you know, we don't have computerised records, medical care records. Mm. So if I have someone, say, for say, for argument's sake, from the north side of the city and they have a GP in the north side of the city and they're transferred, say, out to a nursing home out in Ballincolleg or wherever. Um, and then the question is about making sure that there is GP cover for that patient while they're in the nursing home. Mm. And the important thing is that the care records for that person are available to the nursing home. Yeah. And especially in relation to medication and all of that. And, you know, I suppose that's the reason why you know, how computerised records yeah. would be of a huge, did, make did, a huge Didn't HICWA make a big statement during the week column about did, this, that uh, there were I mean, about 20 years behind the rest of the oh world? Yeah, I mean, Denmark, I mean, if you go to Denmark in 1996, they started computerising all records. Um, in Ireland, we have something like 1,700 different computer systems. In Denmark, they're down to 25, and they're now moving out to five. And they reckon that they were saving about 1.8 right. billion per annum. Because, say, for Ireland, here in Cork, if you go into, say, CUH, and say six months later you're inside the Mercy, and after that you're down in the South Infirmary, Stroke Victoria, there's a paper file in each of those yeah. units, and it's cracked. And, I mean, it is just not the best. Thing. For instance, I had a, a person that I came across who was dealing with four different medical consultants and they were on so much medication that when they were in, admitted to hospital on uh, one of those issues, the consultant in charge said, look, we're going to take you off everything. And in fact, the person went into um, cold turkey because of the... Yeah, the, they were on because so they, much medication. They, 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 they had no notes from the other the um, other, the other And doctors. like we need, we need to computerise. And likewise, okay. with, when people go into to care homes. But the important thing here this morning about this lady is that um, if you want to pass me on the details, I certainly am going to follow it up for her. Okay. It but sounds to me I, like, Colm, that Breda uh, and others like her, what they need really is a, a knowledgeable go-between. Yes. 
No, I don't understand why they're waiting since there. You know, there was a problem in relation to respite care during COVID because a lot of nursing homes suddenly felt it was high risk taking yes. in people, um, uh, you know, for two weeks. And the nursing homes were trying to control the spread of COVID. And there were there was a lot of respite beds and closed down uh, and not available. And that did happen. That has changed. Um, and there should be a respite bed available. Now, okay. I, I, we know I'd have to look at the circumstances in each individual case, but we do have it, and you know, we're read is right, it's about the whole issue in relation to home care, and we discussed this recently. Yeah. We have a huge problem in home care. Um, all of the, um, the HSE, as I said, they had 1,800 people um, employed in the Crock Care region providing home care, say, 18 months ago. 400 people retired out of that scheme in the last 18 months so they came down to 1400 people and that's a huge drop and the HSC have been actively trying to replace those but we're having huge difficulties in getting home cares all of the private companies now are running into difficulties as well yeah. and there is the other issue Peter that's arising in to home care um, because of manual handling and the lifting of people in a lot of cases and uh, health and safety in a lot of cases where say someone has um, home care coming in three times a day um, and that person needs to be moved then the HSE are required to bring in two people three yes. times a day so yeah. you're then doubling up but then you you have the problem and that's reason it's really because of health and safety issues yeah. and um, you know there, in relation to home care, then there's a case of you know you need to adapt houses as well. That's right. That's um, right. Because, for instance, you take a lift now. Say you you have a house to try and um, move a person because they, they want to reduce down the risk to the to the carers. You know you can't put one of these hoists on carpet, so you have to re- take up the carpet and put That's in right. timber flooring. Timber floor, yeah. So they're all the kind of issues that are happening, and you know I'd want to guess myself. Um, where the person was totally resistant to the carpet being removed. And, you know, one of the things about a carpet is was it does, you know, bring warmth and everything else in, into into a home. And suddenly the person who was not able to move as much, you know... Um, they, wanted, they, they didn't like the carpet being lifted, but in the case of... You know, they, they didn't like the timber floor. They never, they never had a timber floor in the house in their lives. You know, so, so there's, there's a whole lot of diplomacy, diplomacy as well that you have to employ. You know? Colm, I'm going to let you hold, put you on hold there for a second, and you can stay listening to me. Um, on the general topic of, of Breda and, and people like her, that's, it's, it's, it's a minefield of, of stuff, to be fair. i just leave Deputy Bork there with, with you, uh, Fiona, for a sec. But I'm going to bring in a man who, to be fair, spends an awful lot of his time helping uh, women and men, but women like Breda. Um, I speak, of course, of the legendary uh, Paddy O'Brien. Paddy, listening to Colin there uh, and listening to the thing where Breed has been trying to get help since February and still can't get it. Colin's work or research tells him the beds are there. What are you coming across? Good morning. Unfortunately and regrettably, PJ, um, the nursing homes that Colin was contacting are different to the nursing homes I'm contacting. My story is that there's not one bed available in Cork City or County. The situation is so bad in Cork for people going into long-term care that the relatives of elderly people who are on the waiting list, they look at the echo, the examiner, <coughs> and when they see a death, which would have taken place in such a home, the matron of the home tell me the phone is ringing for two weeks looking for that bed. 
And in one of says, Breeze's case is not an isolated case. And is that in terms of respite now, Paddy, or people looking for a permanent well, Long term, long term, of course, yes. But in, in relation to respite, I think it's far more effective back than two years ago. Why? I mean, people complain to me, they're, they're not getting a break, they're not getting a break. I mean, look at the situation, take Breeze, I don't know what age Breeze is, but what she's doing is that she's looking after her husband 24 hours a day, seven days a week, right? Mm. But and just, I, I, well, how I explain to people, she gets up in the morning and says, and that's a full day's work, trying to look after a sick, a sick person, doing the work we say of a nurse. And I feel that if there was more support services out in the community, more home care, more home help, more public health nurses, that we'd have less people looking for a spy, and we'd have less people waiting to go into, um, into okay. n- nursing homes. Yeah. Um, I, I think that the, the HSC must be realistic and look at the home and home care in a very serious way. There's no point, there's no point in offering a person 30 minutes and it wouldn't take 20 minutes a week. A week. Yeah. For, for what we care about. They must be realistic and give everybody um, if it's one or two hours during the day. And what's very important because we have done um, with a big population, but many people are living in well into their 90s and over 100. And we have a lot of elderly people living in those who can't care for themselves. And they're finding it very difficult. And I'm ca- I've called on the HSC on many occasions to say, <clears throat> extend and expand the home care service, meaning that we'd have home helps at night. Yeah. At night. The I mean, problem I, appears I, to be getting the staff, Paddy. There, there seems to be a desperate shortage of staff. Right. That's a very good point you're making, but pay the staff. Pay the staff and you won't have any problem. Yeah. I mean, I, I hear, I hear, and that's good. I'm, I'm, I want to say this about um, Colin Bock, who's a friend of mine for many years. I admire him for years, and he does great work and great concern for the uh, for the elderly. So I'm not criticizing Colin, but I am saying that my experience is totally different. It's different. I have people complaining me the whole time. We can't get respite. We can't get respite back. And I was saying that um, nursing homes, I think, would prefer to hand over a bed to a long-term care. And another thing I would say about this um, annual grant. Mm. The annual grant for respite is 1850 yeah. annually. Yeah. Regrettably, and people are the shop and they heard this, I think one of the cheapest nursing homes you'll get around would be 1200 a week. Yeah. A week in a nursing home. And I think it's very, very, very important that elderly people come to the end of their lives, what they want is a bit of quality, and I feel very sorry always for a couple who are trying to care for each other yeah. an elderly couple and when they're in need of more what I would call more professional care and more public health nurses out in the district yeah. more public health nurses calling on the sick people you know a very simple thing and many years ago if an elderly person was discharged from hospital for about two weeks after that you'd have a public health nurse calling that's all gone away with there are less there are less public health nurses working in the community than ever before there are less home health help and you ask me a question, and I'm answering it honestly. If they were paid a reasonably good salary, there wouldn't be any problem. Paddy, I leave it with you there, and leave the last word with you on this one. Thank you very much, Paddy O'Brien, a lifetime advocating for the elderly, and before that.
uh, Deputy Cullen Burke coming to the show this morning saying in his research, and we're not doubting him, there's no shortage of beds. Um, we just need knowledgeable go-betweens to set them up. Paddy O'Brien on the other line saying, actually, that's not the experience I'm having at all. And Paddy, to be fair to the man, has been ringing nursing homes on people's behalf for a many a long day. Take it as you will. Take it as you will here. But Breda can't get a bit of respite for her husband since February. 0818-969696 Access all areas on Cork's 96FM Your guide to nightlife on Leaside Hi, it's Michael here with an update on Cork's entertainment Inside the Ropes Live presents an evening with wrestling legend Rob Van Dam taking place at Cypress Avenue Cork on Thursday, October 6th Don't miss this one-of-a-kind tour or you'll be able to meet Mr. Monday Night and hear stories from his legendary career Access all areas Ska Legends Bad Manners have announced a series of exciting shows across Ireland for November 2022. The upcoming tour will feature original frontman Buster Blood Vessel bringing their biggest hits to fans in the Oliver Plunkett on November 27th. Access All Areas. You can contact us here at Access All Areas if you have a show, play or exhibition coming up or any live streaming events by emailing us now on aaa at 96fm.ie. Access All Areas. Your guide to nightlife on side. On Cork's 96FM. Denise, you're listening to Colin Burke and Paddy O'Brien. Good morning. Yeah. What's your own story? Good morning, PJ. Um, the thing about it is, is <clears throat> I'm helping dad care for mom for the last almost three years. She's got dementia. Okay. She is bedridden. Okay. And she's literally like a baby in the bed. Okay. Now the problem is, is we've been waiting and asking for over 12 months for respite. Dad is in his 70s, and he's and most of the time he's there on his own with mum after I've, like, I've, I've worked and I've kids, yeah. and um, in a relationship, and it's just, it's very hard without the respite, do you know, yeah. and we've never had it. We've yeah. never had the respite, and we're caring for mum at home, and it's, it's quite hard for anyone that's caring for somebody at home, because there's a lot of things that are out there that you don't know. Mm. Can, can I ask Denise... Yeah. How does one go about looking for it? Do, do you have to actually make up, make phone calls? You, well, generally, the first, the first border call when you're caring for somebody is your health nurse. Yeah. That's where you get the majority of the information. Right. Um, and it's between your health nurse and your, um, your GP. It's between the two of them is where things are organised because we've even had Marymount. We've had Marymount as well. Um, but they said, look, mom's case isn't as bad, they don't need their hands on what mom at the moment. So yeah. the only thing is, is they're happy that they got to meet her. And it's a case of they'll know what she was like in a, on a good day as such, so that when she deteriorates, that they'll, they'll be there and they'll be familiar with her. I know. It's very hard. Yeah, it is. It's very hard. And I, I, dad is doing everything he possibly can, but I mean... He can, yeah. The yeah, man needs a break. Like He just he needs does, to sit he down. Does. He needs to sit down and watch the telly with a cup of tea and not have to worry. Yeah. Isn't that right? Yeah, yeah. No, I, I help myself and my fiancé and my brother, we try to help as much as we can to give that a break and um, give him even nights away or whatever. And it's, um, but it, it is, it's tough going. Like, um, like, as you know, PJ, from a lot of the men from years ago with dad being in the 70s, it was the woman that did everything in the house. That's right. And they had control of everything because that's how things worked. That's right. So then it was a big shock to dad because 
he had to go and do all the jobs that mum used to do and he hadn't a clue because her attitude was is, I'm your wife, I'm here to take care of a home, provide food yeah. and everything on the table, keeps you sorted and dad went out yeah. to work. So when the roles changed, he, he did find it very hard and I'd say it would, be, it would be hard for anybody when you're going from a two people solid relationship to just one holding the fort. That's right. That's right. And to you be know, fair, a lot of people of that age, if if the woman isn't able to do the jobs, the poor man sometimes doesn't know where to start. Yeah, yeah. But he's he's brilliant and I'm so, so proud Good of him. Good for him. He's, 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 you know, he's, he's, he's coping. But when you hear Colm then saying, with the best will in the world, and Paddy even says Colm does his level best and he does, when you hear him saying there's plenty of beds out there, you must be asking yourself, like, well, where, where are, are they? they? Yeah, exactly, where are they? Yeah. Where are they? COVID was what was said at the start and after COVID we were still saying, look, you know, can mom get a bed? Can mom get a bed? And it's a case of, like, oh, they're not available at the moment, but she's on the list. Do you know? Yeah, I know, I know. Listen, good luck to yourself and to your dad and indeed to mom. That's Denise, thank you for calling the opinion line. 0818969696. Colin Burke says there's beds out there. His research tells him in preparing for the show this morning, there are beds out there. Paddy O'Brien says, actually, I don't know who he's ringing because I can't find any beds. And there's Denise looking for respite for her poor dad for, for months and she can't find a bed. So, what is going on? The lines are live. And we're ready to talk. Can we just talk? Call 0818 966966. Text or WhatsApp 083 396 Email opinion at 96fm.ie. The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. On Cork's 96FM. Lorraine, you're on the radio in just about a minute's time. We'll see if we can't locate your missing luggage for you. 0818969696, the number to call. The text to WhatsApp is 0833969696 and email us opinion at 96fm.ie. That is the best way to contact us, like we say, out of hours when we're off the air. Opinion at 96fm.ie if you listen to our podcasts we put up every afternoon or indeed our overnight repeat show between 3 and 5 whatever time zone of the world you're in uh, if you're listening to that the best way to contact us opinion at 96fm.ie and we will get back to you just before I go to uh, Lorraine in the last commercial break there before the news you'd have heard uh, the promo for the Arts House and it gives me an opportunity to say that we are thinking today, all of us here the 96FM family, we are thinking of our beloved Elmarie who put it on her Facebook earlier in the week that once again that nasty cancer has returned Uh, she was having surgery yesterday and is obviously facing into more painful and difficult treatment but no doubt our Elmarie will come storming back as she has done before and her radio family is thinking of her and uh, we love her and if she's listening how are you kid we know you'll do this again we know you've done it before we know you'll do it again and to Connor, uh, who constantly looks after Elmarie, our thoughts with you as well, buddy. All right. 0818 96 96 96. Now, Lorraine, you came back from holidays 10 days ago. 
Um, yeah, I flew back from Budapest last Monday, uh, the 15th, and I still have no luggage. So I can't get an answer to actually find out where my luggage is. I don't know what airport it's in, so nobody can tell me where it is. And they're just basically telling me to wait. So you flew from Budapest? Uh, yeah, flew Budapest to Frankfurt and Frankfurt then to Dublin. Um, but our flight taking off in Budapest was actually delayed by an hour. So by the time we actually got to Frankfurt uh, to connect to Dublin, they had held the plane because I think there was like 38 people on board that were going to Dublin. Um, so they held the plane for us. So we literally just got on the plane. So our luggage never made it. Um, and we had to fill out an email then basically to tell them kind of what our luggage looked like, what it contained, all that kind of stuff so they could locate the bag. Um and pretty much the next morning then, I got an email to say they had located the luggage. Um, and so did the other three girls I travelled with. But they have received their luggage since and I still have had nothing. Okay. Who were you flying with? Uh, Lufthansa. Lufthansa. All the way. So was it? Uh, yeah, all the way over and back. Yeah. So both of the flights were with them. Yeah. Okay. And you have contacted their customer service? Yeah, I might as well be talking to a wall, to be honest. Like, I've had uh, numerous people ring, like, at the same time as myself, and they're all telling different things. Like, I was told on Friday um, I'd have my luggage within 48 hours. I was told yesterday that they didn't know what airport. Actually, they told me it was in Dubai. I hadn't been anywhere near Dubai, so I don't know why it was there. Um, I think they might have mixed up the DUB with Dublin instead of Dubai. But every time that... I ask for something they're giving me a different answer yeah. um, I've asked for a supervisor numerous times they said there is no supervisor um, there, there's just, no I supervisor that sounds a bit strange no yeah. no I've you mentioned going through Frankfurt which, which rings yeah. a bell with me um, mm-hmm. because many years ago I was going to India and I was flying out of Amsterdam and when we got to India the bags didn't and they yeah. ended up in Frankfurt and when we inquired as to what the hell they were doing in Frankfurt, we were told that certain airlines, if there is baggage that they can't account for that hasn't made a flight, it goes to this huge holding centre in Frankfurt. And there's another one in Geneva. Yeah. So is that a route you've been able to check? Um, I've tried everything. Like I've tried, I've got onto Frankfurt directly. They don't speak English. Um, so like nobody can actually understand what I'm saying to them. Um, and then I got a, a form from customs kind of a day after we landed just to declare that there was nothing illegal or above um, the limits within my bag. I filled that out and sent it back. I've heard nothing. Um, I've tried contacting uh, the Sky Handling Partner for Lufthansa in Dublin Airport directly. They do not answer the phone. I've sent numerous emails. They do not come back to me. So I'm literally at a brick wall. I can't they won't compensate me anything. They said I have to wait 100, uh, 100 days to declare my bag missing. No, you need that bag fairly pronto because <laughs> you were at yeah. a fest. You were in Budapest for a festival. Yeah, uh, Ziggit in okay. Budapest. Okay, and, and you've tickets for EP. Yeah, I'm going to Electric Picnic next weekend. So all my clothes, my makeup, my jewellery, oh, everything. No. <laughs> yeah, it's all, all your All your weekend. festival clubber is inside in the bag. <laughs> Yeah, like, and do you know what? I understand these things happen. I'm not saying, like, I'm I'm not saying I want my bag right now, but I've been very patient. It's 10 days and I still, I, I can't even find out what airport it's in. If we, if I knew for 100% fact that it was in Dublin Airport, I have no problem driving up there to, to get it. I have no problem doing that. It's just, I can't, I'm not taking the time out of work to take a trip up to be told, basically, it's not here. Yeah, even, I mean, even if it had got to Dublin, you, you just, like, you were to fly Lufthansa to Dublin as well, you, even if they had yeah. managed to get it to Dublin, should they surely let you know? Or they should, shouldn't they? 
Yeah, so all they're basically saying is they pushed our bags um, on the, the following flight the next morning out of Do- or out of Frankfurt to Dublin. It was like an 8.25am flight or something like that. Um, and the other girls, I travelled with three other girls, all of them got their suitcases either the Wednesday or the Thursday following. They all got okay. their stuff. And one of the girls, one of the girls I actually travelled with, they actually got an axe sent to their house along with their suitcase with her name on the front of it. Hold on, hold on, hold on. A what? An axe, like, like, a, as like an a hatchet, chop, like yeah, like for chopping wood or something is what it looks like. But like she did, she didn't bring an axe. She didn't order an axe, <laughs> and it, it came from Lufthansa Airlines. So she's like, I, if they can send me an axe, like God only knows where your luggage is on, basically. So, and I, I, I don't mean to make fun of this, Lorraine. Because oh, I, I know, know. but uh, so, you know someone, if, you don't, if I don't laugh, I'll cry. I know, girl. Somewhere, somebody is looking at a load of clothes in need of a wash, and then yeah, where's oh, my exactly hatchet? What it is. <laughs> where's my I, hatchet? I know. That's it. Where's his hatchet? He's probably up the walls looking for his hatchet because it looks like an expensive thing as well. But mm-hmm. sure, we didn't. We definitely did not bring a hatchet to a festival and have no need for a, fe- a hatchet for a festival. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Are you having no no joy with the handlers in Dublin Airport? And you're having. Have you tried contacting DAA directly? Do they have some kind of lost and found baggage, or do you have to deal with the handlers? Yeah. I actually spoke to a lovely man in Dublin Airport the other day and he was so kind, but like he basically said it's he has no way of helping me that it has to go directly through the handlers. Um and he said kind of off the cuff that basically people at what they're doing at the moment are booking cheap flights out of Dublin Airport so that they can come back through Dublin Airport to actually look for their luggage. That's how bad things are gone at the moment. So, and I take it you have your tags and you have your numbers and everything else. Yeah, I have everything. I have all the reference numbers. I just literally cannot get in contact with somebody who could actually help me. That's mad. Lorraine, I don't know where you go from here or what you do. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe, maybe something will happen. Maybe it'll arrive in time. Yeah, yeah, I know. It's just trying to. I'm just hoping that somebody out there might be listening that can put me in touch with someone somewhere that could point me in the right direction. Well, what we need now, right, is an angry Corkman in Frankfurt, right, (laughs) or Cork woman who speaks German, and that you can WhatsApp them a picture of your luggage label. And they won't leave. You know the way now, Cork, I'm not leaving here now till I know where that bag is. You need one of them to do that in German. Yeah, hopefully, fingers crossed that somebody can help because... Well, I know we have listeners in Germany. I know we do. And if anybody would prepare to take up your cause with the authorities at the airport in Frankfurt to see can we search from that end, that'd be great. Yeah, perfect. All right. Noreen, good luck with it. And I, and Thanks very much. Take care. Cheers. Bye-bye. 0818 she came home from Budapest 10 days ago. She still doesn't have her bag. She came through Frankfurt. She can't find where it's gone. All she knows is it possibly went on the next flight from Frankfurt to Dublin, but she can't find whether it's in Dublin. She doesn't know whether it's in Frankfurt. No one will answer to her. No one will talk to her. And then her friend, who was with her on the same flight, got their bag, and they also got somebody else's hatchet. That's the best bit. The Cork Diary. On Cork's 96 FM.
Canturk Fire Station will be hosting 999 Day, a family fun day this Saturday, the 27th of August from midday. Meet local firefighters and emergency service members. There'll be a CPR skill demonstration, an RTC demo, face painting, bouncy castle and lots more on the day. And all donations from the event will go towards the local air ambulance service. If you have an event you would like mentioned, email the details to corkdiary at 96fm.ie. The Cork Diary. With Tusla Fostering. Now seeking foster carers from a diverse range of backgrounds in Cork. See fostering.ie. On Cork's 96FM. I've been waiting to talk to uh, our next guest on the programme for quite some time. Reason being, he has been travelling the world. It's what he does for work. More about that in a minute. We came across Captain Mark Maguire. Um, looking into, we were looking into the cost of shipping stuff. I was talking to a guy at his earlier this year now, and he was telling me he brings in a lot of stuff on shipping containers from Italy. Actually, he brings in stone, quartz, you know, these worktop things. And he said that a, a ship or a container load of it used to cost, now I'm taking the figures off the top of my head, a container load of it used to cost 3000 to bring in. Now a container load of it costs 23000 to bring in. And that's an across-the-board story. And, of course, it's adding to the cost of living, the cost of importation, the cost of everything. One of the reasons that Captain Mark Maguire knows enough so much about this is that for 22 years, he has been working at sea in that very, very business and, indeed, other related businesses and just back from three months in uh, three months at sea we'll go through that in a minute mark and also quite well known and well followed on tiktok which is where we found you mark good morning good morning pj how are you good watching your video again this morning about the cost of transport and the cost of shipping containers and and all of that and there's others besides before before i talk to you about those what persuaded you or what what was your? Why did you start doing this stuff on TikTok? Was it just a, a spur of the moment? You had a half an hour to spare and said, "I'll try it," or what? Well, it was kind of like that. Yeah, um, I started doing it around December of last year, just out of boredom, really. Um, you would have a few extra hours there in the evening at sea, and uh, we have fairly good internet now. So I said, "All right, I'll have a look at TikTok." Didn't think much of it, and uh, I said, "I just start posting a few things here and there." And after a few days, I had a few followers, a few weeks, I had a few thousand, and now we're up to about 80,000, and people seem to be enjoying it. I think it's because it's simple, common-sense explanation of, of things that appear to be a mystery to us. Like that guy I was talking to earlier in the year, his container load of quartz, quartz slabs of quartz, were costing him, for argument's sake, three grand a time to come from Italy. Now they were costing him 23. Why did it, why did it get so so expensive for this stuff to move around the world? Well, it's kind of supply and demand, really. Um, You have a lot of price increases around the place. You have COVID-19, of course, which was the main problem because you have shortages in um, staff in a lot of the ports. You have lockdowns in China and you have a lack of containers and a lack of ships. So it's kind of snowballed from there. The big ship that got stuck in the canal... Uh, now, yeah, never that, gave. that held stuff up for months on end. That added to the problem. It did because you have a bottleneck there, and it, it costs anything between some say two billion and some say four billion. 
um, for that week that she was stuck in there. But you can see how the, the global market there is so susceptible to any kind of um, rapid change, you know. Yeah. So much of the stuff that we use day to day and so much of the stuff that we buy has to come from, from Asia. And we don't realise yes. it can spend many weeks, if not months at sea. It can, yeah. And a lot of it is raw materials, of course, not just finished products. You know, people think you're buying a lot of stuff from China, um, a lot of your finished products, but a lot of our raw materials come from there as well. A lot of chemicals that are used in manufacturing around Europe, of course, as well. And if you have any slowdown there, then you have a slowdown in manufacturing um, across Europe and across the United States, of course, where we buy a lot of our products from too. Um, Of course, in China, you still have a lot of lockdowns that are happening. Uh, When I was there recently, Shanghai was locked down. So, you know, you have 10, 20 million people locked down, can't leave their houses, can't go to work. And of course, everything stops. And then you just have this situation where it's kind of chicken and the egg and you can't get the products out. So you can't get the products made. Yes, that's China where lockdown is lockdown like. Yes, very much so, lockdown. Like when I was there, we had a lockdown um, in Tianjin, which is a port up in the north, and there was one case of COVID found, and there was a lockdown of 10 miles around the area. Now, the port kept working, but they lock everybody into the port, but everybody outside that was locked down. So you're talking about 5 or 10 million people there who are literally just, that's it, shuts doors, you can't go out. Wow. Well, and of course, that, that, and that's that, continuing. That's still going on. That yeah. stops everybody. Now, another thing that, of course, has gone through the roof is the cost of fuel, the cost of fueling a vessel. That's gone up as well, hasn't it? It has, yeah. Well, it fluctuates wildly, of course. Um, like, for example, during my last trip, when I joined, it was about $660 a tonne. Now, when we're going at top speed, we're burning about six tonnes an hour. And then... Two months later, it was $1,100 a tonne. So that's a considerable jump. Double. And then by the time I had, yeah, exactly. And then by the time I had got off the ship, it was back down to about 880 So you're talking thousands of dollars an hour increase in cost. And if you take it like the company that I work for, Maersk, they have 700 ships. You know, in the course of a day, that's hundreds of thousands, even millions of dollars in fuel costs changing just like that. So the cost of, obviously the cost of loading just one shipping container onto a tank, the amount of money it costs to actually drive. So you're talking several, six, what, six tons an hour at $880 a ton, and this thing can be at sea for weeks. Yeah, and you're just talking fuel alone, not the other operating costs associated, and then all the port costs, of course, on top of that, maintenance feeding crew and all that kind of stuff and you also have all the por- all the um, costs that go into the port operations and then the transport and infrastructure after the port trucking etc so when you have shortages and bottlenecks in one place it's going to cause a domino effect further on yeah you mentioned as well of course the simple uh, supply and demand principle of capitalism that's going on too that's it it is, of course. Yeah, yeah. I mean, companies are out to make money. Nobody was complaining when container costs were, you know, rock bottom. You could ship a container there at one point for a couple of hundred dollars. Now it's several thousand dollars, you know, so make hay when, while the sun shines kind yeah, of idea. Indeed. Your own work, you're 22 years uh, at, at sea and traveling the world. You're just back from three months away. Where have you been? Yeah, um, started in the Adriatic. I joined in Copa in Slovenia, and we went to Italy and Croatia, 
Egypt, Saudi, Oman. And we go to Singapore and we do a few ports in China and Korea. And then it's back to China and Singapore again. And we make our way back. So it's almost exactly three months round trip. And what, exa- what are you doing? Are you actually up in the, in the bridge or what are you at? Well, I'm, I'm kind of on call 24-7. Um, I don't do a huge amount of time on the bridge anymore because at sea you go from third officer, second officer, and then chief officer, and they do four-hour watches, eight-hour on, and then four-hour on again. So they cover the whole day while we're at sea. The rest of the time, I'm mostly doing admin these days. <laughs> okay, so you're, 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 running, you're running the business from on board. Yes, correct. Yeah. yeah, and we're in close contact with everything ashore, and there's a thousand and one things to do on board a ship of that size every day. You know, there's a lot of maintenance going on. Mm. Um, we have to do our training and our drills and, you know, just the day-to-day life that goes on on board ship is just like life in, in any business and any life ashore. Yeah. These enormous container vessels, we see some of the, and they, they, they would be the smaller ones coming into, say, Ring of Skiddy. Like, how many crew are on those things, Mark? Um, on my ship, there's about two dozen um, the smaller ones that you see coming into Cork and that probably have um, maybe 15, something like that. Um, we are, we could run our ship on with 18 people, but you wouldn't get much maintenance done with that. But generally around 24 people on a ship um, the size of the one I'm on. And how big is your ship then? Um, we we carry 15,000 containers on my ship. She's about uh, 153,000 tonnes. So she's one of the bigger ships in the world at the moment. It's something, what, bigger than Parky Cueve, I suppose? <laughs> yeah, she's 353 metres long, so she's about um, maybe two and a bit Parky Cueves, I guess. <laughs> how, did you get in, <laughs> how did you get into that as a young thing? Um, well, I was living, I live in Court McSherry, and, uh, you know, there's a lot of good seafaring people around here and my brother went to sea ahead of me he's uh, he's 10 years my elder and uh, he's a sea captain as well he works for um, the cruise lines and uh, sure when he was coming home you'd see all the nice places he'd been to and the photographs he'd bring back and things like that and there was a lot of people uh, in the area like our neighbour Donny Hunt he was at sea for many many years as a bosun and he'd be regaling you with stories from all over the world as well and I said that sounds a bit bigger than Court McSherry, I might give it a go. And uh, once I got out and got into it, I thought, okay, this is the life for me. <laughs> and uh, the rest of the street. <laughs> yeah. Like your job now and, and the job compared to the job of captaining a cruise ship, how, how different are they? Uh, quite different, I would say. None of my cargo talks back to me, so that's quite <laughs> a bonus for me. <laughs> yeah. A lot of the trade routes around the country have been plagued, Mark, with, with piracy. Have you ever come across pirates? Yeah, yeah. We, we actually pass through the, um, the high-risk piracy area um, every trip, twice a trip, through Somalia. Um, now, it has calmed down a huge amount in the last few years, thanks to um, serious naval operations going on internationally in the area. Um, but way back when it was very bad, we were chased by pirates for a couple of hours. Um, three skiffs with a couple of guys on board uh, followed our ship um, for about an hour or so and then broke off the chase. Um, so that was um, that was quite an experience, mm. not one that I would like to repeat. Uh, uh, skiff, but thanks, skiffs, thanks they're, they're small little motorboats, aren't they? 
They are. They're just like an open top, um, like a large open top speedboat. And they'd have four or five fellas inside it. And they'd try and see what's the best way of getting on board if they can. No, um, it was was quite rare. Um, Like a container ship, the size of the one on now, has never been successfully boarded, thankfully. Yeah. But uh, as I say, in Somalia, it's it's gone way down now. Where the problem lies now is in the west coast of Africa, the Gulf of Guinea. It's got quite bad there. And you have some sort of small-scale stuff, especially around the Singapore Straits. So, so yeah. piracy is still uh, still a very real threat around the world. Yeah. So it's kind of hard to imagine a couple of fellas in, in a small open-top speedboat actually managing to, to get on board one of the huge things that, that you're in charge of. How would they board? Yeah, they usually do it like grappling hooks and ladders and things like that. Um, you know, desperate people will do desperate things. Um, if anybody's ever seen the Captain Phillips movie, that's quite a good representation of um, of how it happens. Wow. Um, they, they'll try and climb on board and then they just try and take over the command of the ship. Um, we, we lock the guys away in a... In a in a citadel and um, just kind of switch everything off and get in touch with um, naval authorities and hopefully somebody will come and help us out. Uh, in the Somali area, there's always somebody pretty close by. So, um, yeah, we, we we feel pretty safe these days, I must say. Good, good. Now, I, someone on the phone is asking this question. I, I, never, I never heard of it, but I don't know whether you can or not. Can you book a kind of a discount cruise by getting a cabin and getting a job on a container ship? Some people, well, pre-pandemic you were able to do that, all right. Um, weren't able to do my company, but there are definitely companies around the world that do have passenger cabins oh. on board, and you could, yeah, yeah, and you could book from, let's say, Europe to Australia, and um, it would take you, you know, maybe a couple of months, but you'd get there and um, you, you wouldn't be part of the crew now. You wouldn't be able to work on board or anything because to work on board our ships, you have to have all sorts of specialist training um, done. But you could certainly travel as a passenger, yeah. Crikey, yeah. that's amazing. That's amazing. So when, yeah. are you, when, are you, when are you off again? Uh, I'm off now for three months. Right. So I'm not heading back now until uh, the middle of November. So I have a few holiday plans and uh, plenty of jobs around the house that yeah. kind of build up over three months. Yeah. Have, have you have you family? <laughs> I do. I do. I have a wife, my wife Donna, and uh, my son Fionn. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, yeah, we 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 were well used to this lifestyle now. Yeah, yeah. Where does a fellow though who's seen probably every corner of the world and then some go for his holidays? Are you going to tell me Cormac Sherry, aren't you? <laughs> I try to spend as much time around Cormac Shorey as I can because absence makes the heart grow fonder of course but uh, we're heading off to Italy in, uh, in in a couple of weeks my wife has um, a, a bit of work to do down there and we're going to make a holiday out of it as well so um, yeah I love Italy Yeah, so we're going to enjoy that Fascinating to talk to you Mark and uh, safe seafaring when you're back out there uh, that's Captain Mark Maguire Corkman uh, travels the world and the shipping container lines with I think he Maersk is his is his company and they are, he goes out for three months and he's back for three months and out for three months and back for three months and now he's going off to Italy on holidays. Pirates. So there you hear the stories, and they're true. But I love that idea. God, if I had me time again, if I had me time again, I might look to book a cabin and go off and travel the world. Fergal says he knows someone who did it years ago. I'd say, what a fantastic way to see the world. Thanks, Mark. 
have you ever had, this is not something I've ever thought about, although I have two dogs that I love very much, or we have two dogs that we love very much in the house, and two cats um, who we love but despise us, but that's just being a cat, but focus on the dogs. Have you ever thought about bringing your dog to your wedding? What? Yes. Well, they are part of the family. Have you ever thought about bringing your dog to your wedding? Now, tomorrow, Friday, is International Dog Day. Did you know that? August 26th is International Dog Day. And to mark that, there's been a list published of 17 venues in Ireland who are dog-friendly. And one of them is in County Cork. Joined by Shell Holden, who is co-owner of SaveMyDay.ie. Shell, good morning. Good morning, PJ. Thanks a million for having me on. Delighted. Dogs at weddings. As a dog lover, <laughs> not something I've ever thought about. <laughs> yeah, but you know what? Many, many people are. Um, so at, at our wedding website, which is SaveMyDay.ie, we've actually seen a huge increase in dog-friendly wedding venues. We've actually seen a 50% increase over the last six months alone. Um, and I really think that there is probably a growing trend for these you know, type of venues for kind of a couple of main reasons, I suppose. Um, I think, you know, you have dogs yourselves. I have a rescue three-year-old um, called Chips from the DSPCA. And across Ireland, we're absolutely dog mad. Like mm. we are self-confessed dog lovers. Um, so I think there is this general understanding now that dogs are kind of a key part of the family mm-hmm. and a key part of everyone's life so sorry of everyday life so for example we're not only just seeing dog friendly wedding venues we're seeing more dog friendly pubs restaurants and i think that's going to increase um as well but also looking practically i think there is an understanding that dogs are typically more well trained so you know they're trained to live within the household you know sometimes sleeping in the bed with us um, <laughs> so venues now know that dogs are going to be more well behaved on the big day yeah um you have for example the charleville park as as one of the most dog friendly venues yes in the country, a fine hotel. Why have they made the list? What do they do that's special? Yeah, so what, what we loved about Charleville Park Hotel um, is firstly that they offer dog-friendly accommodation for small doggies. So they understand that, you know, it's not easy to leave your pet behind, um, especially uh, during your uh, your big day. And they understand that there is this demand um, for couples who want to bring their dogs and also stay over, you know. Um, but what we did really like as well is the close proximity of Charleville Park to the uh, Ballyhora countryside so that there's ample walking trails and a lot of access to also woodlands and hills. Mm. Um, so these would be perfect for like big walkies, you know, the day after the wedding or indeed some lovely backdrops for wedding photography with your free friend and a few of them as well. Now, how, how does the dog participate in the day? Yeah, so we've, we've seen, um, we've experienced a few different ways. So we are seeing that some couples like to bring their dog to be part of the ceremony. So there might be, you know, a walkies up the aisle. So maybe a bridesmaid or a groomsman might, you know, walk the dog up the aisle. We have also seen a dog walking a bride up an aisle before. Um, sometimes the um, the dog might be a ring bearer. So the ring might be attached to their collar oh. <laughs> um, and also then be part, oh, that's <laughs> be part of the ceremony. That is very, very cute. Well, it's cute unless um, the dog makes it, decides to head for the door, like. 
Yeah, and you know what? Um, I'm delighted you brought this up, right? So our top tip to people who are preparing to bring their dog to the big day, day is to have realistic expectations. So you know your dog. You know that, oh, I if you put your dog in a tutu, is that going to look lovely or is it going to be ripped <laughs> off in two stop, seconds stop. flat? You're going to dress the dogs as well? There are some people who we have seen, you know, get little groom outfits or dicky bows, uh, sometimes even a tutu on the dog. Um, yeah, it, it is that level. Now, if I did that to my dog, it would be ripped off in two seconds flat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think it is also to know, <laughs> to know the realistic um, is if you put the ring on their collar, is that going to be suddenly a mile down the road and add a bit of panic today <laughs> yeah. to the day? And would you do things like decorative white leads with little jewels on them and stuff? I don't think there's any limit. I think you could. I think you could have, you know, floral. You could have, you know, flowers around their necks. You could do whatever you want. But I think a real cute part, a cute way for them to be part of the day is to be part of wedding photos. These are really, you know, because yeah. it is an opportunity for you to get um, photos with all your family, and that does include your doggy. So they're great memories to have for years. Absolutely, it does. Now at dinner time. This is where I perceive problems, and I speak particularly from personal experience of my own dogs, who would literally yeah. go from table <laughs> to table to table, yeah. bumming and begging for any last bit of beef or salmon that's going to fall yeah. off or be given. Like, dogs could get sick if people give them all the tidbits they're bumming for. Yeah, they, they could get sick, and also the puppy dog eyes. You know, the, you oh. know, you might want to have your you you might want to have your meal in peace. So what we're saying is, so there is um, venues that offer pet friendly accommodation, and that's absolutely brilliant. Obviously, you mentioned um, the Charleville Park Hotel, but there's like uh, Hotel Doolan and Clare and Limerick's Castle Troy Park Hotel mm. um, and Castle Oaks, and there's uh, numerous around numerous um, venues that offer pet friendly accommodation. And you can check them out on our list on SaveMyDay.ie. But if your venue doesn't offer um, pet-friendly uh, accommodation, it is to prepare for this. So, you know, there will be the dinner or maybe the speeches or, you know, particularly when the disco, you know, happens, the dog's going to need to retire somewhere. Um, so what there is available uh, is there's actually pet sitters that you can get for your wedding day. Yes, everyone is. They've thought of it all. So there's companies that offer this service, um, and I know some venues can offer this service as well. Like a child minding, you can also have a pet minder. <laughs> for later so they the go day. up to the room, is it, or they go to another part of the hotel? So, for example, if so, if you had pet friendly accommodation, obviously, you know, if your dog is well behaved, they could, you know, stay in the room themselves there. But let's say you were getting married in a restaurant. So there's like um, 360 cookhouse in Waterford um, or um, you were getting somewhere married that didn't have pet friendly accommodation. You can actually get pet sitters to come and kind of, you know, take them away so they could bring them back to their house for that night. Um, or what we have seen as well is people might arrange with a relative or a family friend that might have to leave early. So let's say they might have young kids or they might be leaving early for whatever reasons. They kind of arrange with them to kind of bring the dog um, bring the dog uh, away later in the day. Right. It, it, it just sounds like so much fun. When I think of my, <laughs> my two fools at home, how much they'd love it. It's amazing. Yeah. And tomorrow being International Dog Day, of course, we'll all be... So if anybody is planning to get wed in the next few months or whenever, they go to savemyday.ie and they want to bring their doggy, you'll help them. 
yeah, we, we will indeed. So if you go to savemyday.ie or also on Instagram, we're at savemyday.ie and we have put together a list of 17 dog-friendly venues right across 10 counties in Ireland. Okay. All right. Listen, I, listen our listeners, you see, our, <laughs> our listeners always have the last word, Shell. Um, and, okay. Yeah, and Dee has just asked a question. Where do the dogs get done up for the day? Do they go to Peter Barks? Boom, boom. Oh! <laughs> you know what? That's appalling. Oh! <laughs> Shell, thank you very much. Shell Holden of Save My Day, Dadae. We really have gone to the dogs. Can we just talk? The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. Text or WhatsApp now. 83 On Quartz 96FM. Yes, Eugene. I was wondering whether someone would bring that up. A, a number of years ago, for reasons that I still can't put together in my head, and at a time when I should have known an awful lot better, I actually went to Middleton dressed as a priest to marry two dogs. And Eugene, only a few people remember that. You're one of them. I never quite lived that one down. But it was fun too at the same time. Thank you, Father Jack Russell. I know. 0818969696. Before I forget this, because it's on my screen with a day or two, I must do it. We were talking a couple of weeks back with David from Castleview Soccer club, Castleview AFC, is setting up football lessons and sessions for kids with additional needs. Football for all. Now, they had a good response and they're starting on September 2nd, which is tomorrow week, Friday. And he needs some help with getting supplies and training kits together for them so they can look the part. If anybody would be interested in sponsoring that, some Northside business maybe, who'd be interested in sponsoring that for Castleview AFC football for all for youngsters with special needs. Dave, David put it together off his own bat. We were talking to him about it a few weeks ago. 0818 96 96 96. Have a listen to this. That's a band called The Jollies. And if I asked you where The Jollies were from, by that sound, you'd say maybe they were from West Cork, from Coulee, maybe. Or were they from Kerry, from the Grailtucht, or maybe from the Donegal Grailtucht. Good, old, hearty, maybe from Kerry, good, or, or, or Clare, good, hearty trad music. Actually, no. The Jollies are from Ukraine. You better explain this, Keith Woodgate. Good morning. Good morning, PJ. How are things? Great. These lads are from Ukraine and have no English, or very little anyway, and they've only been in Ireland how long? Oh, since last Friday. Okay. Where do they learn to play yeah. like that? Well, they're, they're playing it about 10 years. Um, they're just highly influenced by Irish traditional music, and their dream was to come to Ireland and play music in Ireland. So they fled the war in Odessa about five weeks ago and they've been travelling in their car across Europe playing Italy, Germany, everywhere and now they've come to Ireland they're going to play for a few weeks before they head back to Europe. Because their sound is so authentic. It's fantastic. 
<laughs> like I, I played a video this month. That's a, just a snatch from a video that you sent us. They're just remarkable. They're so so good. Have they got? They've got some gigs I think lined up with you in Mallow, have they? They do. I have them in the Hibernian Hotel Bar on September the tenth at ten pm, and I have them in Geary's in Charleville on September the eleventh at six pm. Um, and I just have to point out there that they're actually in Flannery's in Glasheen tomorrow at ten o'clock. Oh, tomorrow night? Yeah. In Flannery's in Glasheen? Yes. Oh, my goodness me. There'll be a crowd there. There'll be a crowd there because that's it. And they, they, do, they do a whole session just like that. I think, stay there, Keith. I think, uh, Valerie. Uh, Valerie. Hello, Valerie. Yeah. Hello, Valerie. Hello. Hi, you're one Hi. of the member of the Jollies. Yeah, we're all together here now, and uh, Nick and Eugene, we're all together. Hello, everybody. Hello. Hi, guys. How are you? Valerie, where did you learn to play Irish music so well? So uh, well. Well, just from, from internet. I've never been to Ireland. I never had um, a teacher, like Irish music teacher, I don't know. Uh, just uh, from internet, from YouTube, we... Um, yeah, listened a lot and um Wow. And where did you get the interest in Irish music? Irish music. Um to be honest, um uh, we have no we have no answer on this question because it's like kind of magic we'd say. Sometimes we think that we were born just in wrong country. <laughs> because Irish culture is deeply in our hearts and souls. Nice. And nice. um there is one phrase that we love, um like uh, to use like an answer, uh, we are Irish not because we were born in Ireland, but because Ireland was born in us. I think that's a lovely way of saying. It's a lovely way. So you're playing a couple of days. You're in Flannery's tomorrow night. Then you're in Mallow and you're in Charleville in September. September. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay. Well, listen, I know a lot of people will be fascinated to hear you and to see you and to meet you. Welcome to Ireland. And you are doing our music, our traditional music, so well. I look forward to catching up with you at some stage during your your few gigs. That's Valerie Majorenko from the Jollies, Keith Woodgate before that. And that is pretty much it. I'm kind of bang out of time. I'd rather have more time to talk to the guys. But you'll see them tomorrow night, Friday, Flannery's, Glasheen, the Jollies playing, playing Irish music. And they've been here a week. That's that's just remarkable. Absolutely remarkable. The programme today, edited by Fiona Corcoran, produced and researched by Fergal Barry. And we shall see you tomorrow, just after nine. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello 
Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.